My guest tonight is, as I said a moment ago, Jay Bonensinger, who is a mystery writer and a very successful one. He's got some seven or eight novels to his credit, a number of screenplays, and he lives right here in town, in Evanston. And he got drawn in to the Eastland tragedy. How did that happen? That's correct. I've been haunted. I think that's the word I, that I, I have to use because uh, ever since I was walking along the, the river one night with a friend and he said, did you know that that area is haunted? I said, no, why? And he said, well, there was a shipwreck there. And I said, what, by LaSalle Street? <laughs> you know, and I thought of, you know, Spanish galleons in the middle of the river. You know, you can toss a stone across and it didn't make sense. And it was surreal. And I just started learning more and more about this horrendous tragedy. And I became more and more obsessed when I realized it was forgotten. It was kind of lost. This was a shipwreck one summer's day in the right. month of July, was it not? Yeah, 7.30 in the morning, uh, July 24th. Right here in the middle of town with people standing by watching, some eight, more than 800 people drowned. Yeah, 844 people. Incredible. Tens of thousands of people watching it happen. Many of them crossing Clark Street and looking down at the boat, seeing it list and saying, that boat's going to tip over better get off that boat mm -hmm. and everybody on the boat in their festive attire singing saying ah go on you yeah. know some of the kids were even going as the boat's starting to list they're going whoa whoa as it tips back surreal the people were people who worked at and the families of people who worked at the um, general electric plant yeah, which Western still, Electric. Western Electric, right? Yeah. Which still stands out there. Is it still... Well, well yeah. The the site now it, is... It's the Hawthorne yeah. plant, is what it was it's called. The, yeah, right. And now, as, as the way that everything else has gone, it's the Hawthorne Mall right uh -huh. now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can still go to the site, but you can't see the, the plant. When I first came to town, gone. which was a number of years ago, it was still functioning as a no production kidding. facility in wow. 1965. Yeah, right, right. Yes, yes, that's correct. Yeah, so was this huge. was the annual picnic day for the people who worked for that's Western right. Electric. That's right. It was a city within a city, really, that plant. And they worked really hard. There were no coffee breaks. And they wore three-piece suits on the, line, the floor. on the line. Yeah. You know, I, there's a picture in the book of the gentleman in there, you know, woolen suits putting you know winding cable it's mm -hmm. incredible and when they did have their annual picnic they cut loose it was a huge event and the, the company hired some five or six ships to take them uh, across the lake to south haven right right and there uh in that area there was a, an amusement park and a band shell mm -hmm. and they danced and they had been there before i mean this was an annual um, event and uh, annual excursion, and they did sack races and and it was it was really a wonderful, sweet way for them to blow off steam and it was it was huge for them. You start the book with uh, a young girl about twelve or thirteen, I believe she is right thirteen on yeah, that day exactly and I'll be, and as I read the beginning of the book, I realized you've seen a picture of this young girl, yeah, because you you have a reaction yes. to her, which is shows some real familiarity with her features and her expressions. Right, right. Who I, she? I triangulated her soul through her pictures and her family. Mm -hmm. And it was a beautiful experience. I have to say the Wachholz family in Arlington Heights and the Decker family um, provided me with memories and oral histories and all the photos of this woman, Borgild Anstadt, 
Norwegian immigrant girl. Mm-hmm. Um, they called her Bobby, and she became really the spine of my book. I, I knew I had it when I heard that she was uh, trapped in an air pocket for 11 hours after the ship had gone down. I was like, I got my book. I got my book. She was one of the survivors. Yes, she was one of the survivors. How many people went on board? Tw- well, it's funny you ask that because the capacity of the ship was listed at that time, and it, it had gone up and down over the years due to safety mm-hmm. issues and stuff. At that time, it was 2,500. I believe there were over 2,500 people on that ship. There were people leaping on board as it started to, to cast off. So it was, I personally, I have concluded it was overloaded. That was one of the problems. One, one of the, the questions, of problems. course, that one needs to address, and we will do that, as you do in the book. But first we want to get more of the story. But one of the questions, of course, the basic question is, what went wrong? Yeah. And who was responsible? That's a fascinating... But let's, let's first set the scene of the actual event. Um, people are standing on the shore, people are on the boat, and who notices what first? Yeah, it was, it was a misty morning. It was, it was a little gray. The mist started to come down as it neared the, the putting out point mm-hmm. where the ship was going to pull away. And uh, the people were loading uh, um, two abreast on these big planks, and the ship was getting very crowded and very full of very festive, happy people waving down to their friends on the dock. And as an aside, an urban folk legend that grew up around this you ask an old-timer, Chicago, do you know about the Eastland? They'll say, oh, yeah, that was that boat that uh, where all the people went over to one side, and they waved down, and it tipped over. And I found that that was exactly the opposite of what had happened. They did go over to the one side, and it started to list toward the other side, toward mm-hmm. the river side. And at first, nobody paid it much mind, even the crew. They were used to the boat But you say listing. that the whole thing, the whole capsizing, took only five or six minutes. Yeah, well, they had... They had maybe roughly 15 or 20 minutes of... Where it was listing. Where, yeah, in, in increasingly deep lists yeah. where people started to wonder, get a little you know, nervous. Was anybody on the boat trying to correct the list and compensate yes. for it? Yes. What were they doing? Well, they were, cha- they were uh, as they do on a ship, they were letting water out of ballasts mm-hmm. and filling other ballasts to try to adjust and react to it. Um, but in those days, it was a slow process, and this boat was known as a, quote, cranky boat, meaning when you let all the water out of the ballast in it, yeah. and it went sort of up shallow in the water to go into a riverway, a waterway, it got a little hard to, you know. Well, the fact is, manage. I learned from, uh, from your fine book, the title again is The Sinking of the Eastland, America's Forgotten Tragedy by J. Bonansinga, and that is just published by... Citadel Press. Citadel Press. And yes. I learned from this book that this, when it was originally built, way back in, was it 1905 or thereabouts? Right, yeah, 1906. 1906, yeah. was um, built narrower than all right. the other steamers on the lakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was known as, as the Speed Queen of the Great Lakes. And a lot of the sailors said that it was like a bicycle um, mm-hmm. in terms of stability. You know, when you slowed down on your bike, your bike started to wobble your bike will wobble. You know, as you speed up, your bike becomes very stable. That's the kind of ship this was. Out on the lake, going full bore, it was steady as a rock. But Built it, in 1905-1906, it's, it's been on the lake for 10 years or so. Yeah, it has a long service. Did, did it have other 
troubles before. Yeah, it had near misses, near misses. Near capsizings? Yes, yeah. One was in the open water Mm. when they were really considering starting to uh, have people abandon ship. And, uh, in fact, it's amazing, Mill, if you, if you read, you know, the inquests and, and the, the body of, of, you know, scholarship on this that already existed, um, there were people who had given warnings. This boat is, a, is an accident waiting mm-hmm. to happen. It's a disaster waiting to happen. Naval architects, um, letters were written. Um, it's another thing that I came to the conclusion at the end of this process was um, one of the major factors in this disaster was greed. You know, <laughs> greed is often the ultimate explanation yeah. of almost every disaster. Surprise, one surprise. Way, one way or another. <laughs> Whose greed are we talking about? Well, you know, greed of the uh, company that operated the steamer that uh, agreed, um, you know, uh, among the top people, the captain, the owners who wanted to get the passenger uh, count back up there and get it going as many times across the river and, and started to neglect things like safety. You know, um, essentially, it was, you know, they came out looking pretty bad. Did they neglect maintenance for the boat in the previous months or years? Well, that's another controversy because there was a steamship inspection service, and um, the inspector um, stood before, you know, uh, try, you know, the 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 criminal proceedings and the civic civil proceedings uh, after this disaster happened, and was asked many questions, like, for instance. Why was your relative working on the boat? Hit a relative mm-hmm. on the crew. Um, and that's just the, the first one that pops in my mind. There was all kinds of like conflicts of interest. Um, and, and it extended to the highest levels of government. Um, you know, the Secretary of Commerce rushed here after the disaster. Mm-hmm. Woodrow Wilson was on, he was on, you know, on his retreat at the time that it happened. And he instantly wired him and said, get over there, get to Chicago get to the bottom of it. And many people believed, I'm kind of ambivalent about it, but there was a sort of whitewash. Yeah. I'm and getting ahead of myself a so little bit. Well, but. getting to the bottom of it, there are, are also those people who got to the bottom of it under the river. They got to the bottom <laughs> of it within the, the hull of the boat and filled with yeah. water. Right. Uh, let's take it at that moment when the capsizing happens. How many people are above... Uh, uh, are on deck, how many are inside the, the That's boat That's an excellent question, because the, the, the distribution was fairly even, I believe, because of the amount of people on that ship. Mm-hmm. There were 2,500 plus, so each of these five decks were, were really loaded almost elbow to elbow. So there were hundreds, hundreds of people when this ship finally, and at the, the point that it went over, which, as I said earlier, maybe 15 to 20 minutes into the loading process after it had become completely filled to capacity and the uh, bursers, the ticket takers said, okay, that's it. They pulled the gang- gangplex mm-hmm. out and it was tipping deeper and deeper. Um, it all happened so suddenly and quickly that they didn't even have time to open up the gangways again. The captain screamed, open up the gangways for God's sake. And almost as he got that out of his mouth, the ship just slammed down into the water. And as and it, your, your uh, excellent question was how many people were, were hopeless, how many people were you know part of a catastrophic situation. And there were hundreds, literally hundreds below deck that had no hope, no hope. I mean, many of them... Uh, many of the the um, 
fatalities were found crushed around the central staircase. And obviously there was mm -hmm. a mad rush, perhaps in those seconds. We know that. Um, there's a whole section of the book that's chilling and uh, disturbing that follows the, the hard hat divers going in there and finding these people who had perished literally in the arms of their mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. This is a family thing, and there are loads and yeah, loads right, of children exactly. in this book. Exactly, exactly. It was a family outing, and they trusted um, the company. They trusted the boat. I would. You know, who wouldn't? Sure. You know? Um, and there must have been a moment. There must have been a, a an area below deck that is in within the hull, where, uh, as it tipped over, people fell towards the bottom, whatever the bottom was, uh, whether it was star port or starboard. But that now became right. the floor. Right. And uh, it began. It must have filled up with water rather quickly. Yeah, I mean, it was. Water uh, would have rushed in. It was like an avalanche of water. Yeah. I mean, it was it was like getting slammed in the. So there would have been a lot of deaths by drowning. Very true. Within the boat. Within the boat. Yeah, I think though, looking at the uh, coroner's inquest, the the majority of the deaths were deemed suffocation deaths mm -hmm. because that boat was so loaded. It was so full of people. So it's remarkable, and and the the. It's utterly horrible. It, it is. You compare this to the. Thinking of the Titanic, which had made the big news only two or three years before. Right. More people were killed on, more passengers were killed on this boat than on the Titanic. Isn't that boat. amazing? Yeah. More well, passengers. More passengers. The numbers, uh, just off the top of my head, and I'm not going to be exact here, but um, the number for the Titanic was roughly 1,500 and some mm -hmm. um, fatalities. But um, less than 830 or so of those were passengers. Yeah. You know, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of crew, crew people who It'd died. It being an ocean-going vessel. Right, exactly. And also, those people had time to get off or to make peace with themselves or do whatever they had to do. It took hours for it to sink. And the Eastland, as I said, was more of an instantaneous. It was almost like a, a mine collapsing on people. I kind of equate it to that. The scene know. directly afterward, then, for days afterwards, when they're going after the bodies and laying them out, for identification, that is utterly uh, chilling. It is. One reads yeah. about it in your book, which is a very vividly written book. I should thank you. Instantly, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it, it was an, a fascinating time, uh, 1915, because, uh, for instance, the fire uh, department, the police were still horse-drawn. They weren't motorized yet, and there was really no such thing as emergency service. Just realize we're talking about a hundred years ago. Ninety-nine years. Right. Well, next summer is the ninetieth anniversary. The next, oh, next July is the ninetieth anniversary. I was thinking of 05, but that's yeah. fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. Ninetieth anniversary. Right. Eighty-nine years ago. Right. And, and, and like you said, you know, ninety years ago it was a different planet. It was a different world, and you know. And a different Chicago, I suppose. It, it was. It was. There were still, you know, there were two and two and a half. For so million people here it was it was the great prairie mm -hmm. you know m metropolis at the time don't get me wrong and it was a you know teeming city um but it was a city in transition just like the the country was in transition here's a curious thing uh, the town must have been totally preoccupied with this one that happened and for right. months and months afterwards yet even you who've lived in chicago for a long time had never heard of it and if you take the average young chicagoan and ask them what was the eastland i'm sure none of them would be able to identify. Exactly. It. Why is that? Well, you know what? Maybe you can help me figure it out. I mean, I, I have been obsessed with this for years. Yeah. This is one of the impetuses for, for writing the book. 
I it haunted that haunted me as well. It, how could it be forgotten? Was it because it was so grim? It was so sudden? It was so tragic? Was it because it was immigrants? There were no asters uh, uh-huh. on board. There were no, no unsinkable Molly Browns. They weren't important enough. Or, uh, you know, or were these people? Lately, a gentleman who came to one of my appearances said, uh, you know why I think it was? I think it was because these people were immigrants, mm-hmm. factory workers, and they just didn't talk about stuff like this after it happened. They just went on with their lives. Mm. And I suppose that's... As good a reason as any. You know. We have to try to assess the blame, or at least account for why it happened the way it did, and why, even when it happened, the rescue effort was so inadequate. Uh, we pause in an instant for some commercials, then we'll get back to conversation with Jay Bonansinga, drawing from his very striking, significant, and inevitably enthralling and kind of scary new book, The Sinking of the Eastland, America's Forgotten Tragedy. I note a phenomenon that pops up occasionally and always tells you that people are fascinated by the conversation. Uh, That is, we're getting phone calls before I invited any of them. But by all means, the number is 5917200. And if you want to call us, you can call now. If you don't mind waiting for a few minutes, we'll be on to the phones within 10 or 12 minutes, I think. 5917200. And if you want to reach us, if you're listening to us, over the internet at some greater distance, I want to reach us by email. The email address is extension720 at tribune.com. So who is the captain of the good ship Enterprise? <laughs> yeah, Captain Harry Peterson. Um, he was uh, a dastardly character as I was working on the book, and I uh, loathed him right up until the moment I saw his grave. And my good friends, the Wachholzes, who uh, run the Eastland Disaster Historical Society, um, took me to see his grave in a tiny little Michigan town named Millburg. And they, they said, we've got a surprise for you. I thought they might be taking me out to kill me. No, um, but they took me to this tiny little, you know, forested little sylvan cemetery with these overgrown tombstones. And I went and they took me in the back corner and I looked down and there's a tiny little stone <laughs> And all it says is Harry Peterson and the years of his life. It doesn't say anything about being mm. master of steamships, nothing about his career, nothing nothing nautical, just this sad little stone. Did he, in fact, go on pursuing that career no. after this disaster? No. He retired in shame and, and, you know, a long... He lived quite a few years after the disaster. Had he been a veteran of the lake trade? Yeah. How old and, was he at the time? He was, oh, that's a great question. I think he was in his early 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he lived, you know, well into his 70s, I think. Um, and never once said anything about it to anybody. He sort of became a recluse and lived on a farm. He had a little farm in Milford. Well, but there, were, there, there was a major investigation. Yeah. He had to testify right. there, did he? Not? Right. He said at one point, he said, to, he said I, want, I want to say something to the state's attorney, and the state's attorney brought him into his office, and, and Harry Peterson said, I will not be the goat. So he felt like he knew. Mm-hmm. It, but it's, it's an interesting and kind of convoluted story. It never uh, got to have a full airing uh, because a uh, infamous, I, I guess I, I, I shouldn't use the word infamous, but a famous judge who went on to become baseball commissioner during the Black Sox scandal, Kennesaw Landis, kind of shut down a lot of the inquests and said, no, we're consolidating all the, uh, you know, inquests and, and the proceedings into one 
civil trial and and uh, shut down the state's attorney and the uh, Cook County coroner and a lot of these. So were, what judgment emerged from whatever proceedings went forward? There was uh, that's what a, judgment investigating the cause uh, and the process by which the disaster occurred. Only one person was found guilty of any negligence or any criminal act, and I believe he was a fall guy. He was the chief engineer of the boat, Joe Erickson. Mm -hmm. I believe he was a hero. I believe he risked his life. He, I believe that he went into the boat after it tipped over and shut down a boiler and saved lives, kept the boat from exploding. He was a quiet, he was also an immigrant himself, and you know he sort of became the fall guy. And he was uh, finally found uh, guilty of negligence. By the way, an interesting aside, he was uh, defended in the uh, criminal proceedings by Clarence Darrow. Hmm. The great Clarence Darrow. Yeah, the great Clarence Darrow. Did he? And at the time, I'm sorry to was interrupt. It, what, was he convicted in the criminal proceedings? He, he, was, he was convicted um, and found guilty, and nothing happened after that because he had uh, passed away. Uh-huh. Time is short. Lots of people are clamoring to get in on this conversation, and we'll get to them in a little while. Terrific. But what, then, is your best judgment as to what went wrong and how it went wrong? Well, I have to give a shout-out. I have to acknowledge the work of a master scholar named George Hilton, mm -hmm. who wrote the only other extant book, book-length work on the Eastland, which is out of print now, unfortunately, um, you still can order it perhaps through the uh, Eastland Disaster Historical Society, but um, it is an amazing feat of scholarship. He researched every rivet on this boat, and he came to the conclusion, and I think he was right, that uh, the great irony of this whole disaster was it was caused by overzealous safety concerns in the wake, no pun intended, of the uh, Titanic disaster. Mm -hmm. At the time the Titanic went down, there was much loss of life and many people saying, why weren't there lifeboats for everybody? Uh, you know, why was this scramble? Why was this, you know, the rich people get the lifeboats and the poor people, why weren't there enough lifeboats? And after that, there was a movement that became known as the Boats for All movement. And uh, smaller steamships and excursion vessels like the Eastland got outfitted with lifeboats for everybody. So now you have a capacity of 2,500 people and you have dozens of lifeboats on that top deck when it's only designed to hold, you know, a, a, a dozen at the most or eight Making or ten. Making the boat more top-heavy and thus less stable. Precisely. Just messing up the stability yeah. and, and raising, as, as Hilton found, there's something called metacentric height, uh -huh. which is the stability, the, the lateral stability sure. of a boat. And it raised it it, 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 it decreased it so much that that was just an accident waiting to happen, literally. It was going to go over sooner or later. So why did it happen that day there at Dockside rather than some other time? Uh, that's an excellent question, and, and, and again, I uh, defer to people that know more about boats than I. Uh, my good friend Ted Walkholtz believes that it was the, you know, toxic combination of all these factors. The ballast system had not been, you know, serviced recently, and some believe it was clogged, and the, um, the top heaviness of it, and the design of the ship, because it was designed for speed yeah. and not lateral stability and, and loading. And too many people on board. And too many people on board. And there was something else yeah. about a launch going by on one side, which may have 
been a factor. What was that? How does that fit into the picture? Right. Yeah. The the, the river was crowded, and and there were uh, you know smaller boats, bigger boats going by. There were people leaping. From one, I in fact I found this to be in a literary sense the perfect metaphor. Mm-hmm. I even call one of the chapters Sladkey's Leap because a gentleman named Sladkey, who was in the historic record, leaped onto the boat uh, as one of the other ships was going by, or you know he jumped off the 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 dock onto the onto the boat, and um, you know n- certainly not. There's, there's nothing scientific about it, but I just thought it was like the perfect metaphor for what happened. But there, it all happens early in the morning on that uh, on that day, and yeah. hundreds and hundreds of people are dead almost instantly within exactly within the hour. It would be as though something happened in, in at 7:30 on a work day yeah. on Michigan Avenue that killed hundreds of people in front of thousands. Saturday was a work day in 1915, mm-hmm. so it was just you know crawling with people. They did work harder in those days. He <laughs> did work harder. What? Um, what did it do to the town? What, what happens in Chicago in the days, weeks, months after? It was as though the town, I mean, the way I, I came to think of it was it was though the town suffered from some kind of traumatic stress disorder. The town was um, uh, paralyzed. Um, a, a few days after the recovery effort had ended and they had recovered all the bodies, um, and they had identified all the bodies, which is a whole other story we could talk about. The identification was an ordeal in itself, and it encompasses an entire section of the book. Uh, but then the entire city, and I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, was draped in black. And on Wednesday, um, there were uh, funerals and services and memorials all across the city, and especially in Cicero, where the concentration of these passengers um, were and they called it Black Wednesday. And nothing like it has ever happened in Chicago, even the Great Fire, um, because fortunately there wasn't that the loss of life in the, even in the Great Fire as there was on this disaster. There, the people had time to escape. They had ways out of the central part of the city in the Great Fire. And, you know... You personalized this a great deal by following some of the characters. Of course, there's an interesting problem here. Uh, you're a master of fiction. This is a nonfiction book. But uh, you begin with uh, uh, our heroine, as it were, uh, at the mirror, of primping herself and very excited about going down to the boat. Um, and uh, you imagine what she's saying and thinking. Right, yeah. Now, I, took, I take liberty, and, and uh, I guess I can tell you, um, just between you and me, don't tell anybody this, uh, um, but I set up a per- series of parameters for myself. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can work, I can... Um, uh, I can create a fictional world within these parameters. I have to have at least two sources that bear out what I am speculating. So I tried to have at least two. So this thing is so heavily annotated for that very reason. I didn't want to people to say, the guy's just riffing on, you know. Uh-huh. So, so I tried to have oral history from real people who were talking about perhaps one generation away, either their parent or their grandparent and then triangulate it with something in the historic record. You follow many people, but let's follow Borgild. Borgild Onstad. Yes. What happened to Bobby. her? Bobby. They call her Bobby Onstad. She's my heroine. What happened to her during the disaster and in the rest of her life? She... <laughs> thank you, because I think this is really why someone would pick the book up and read it, to know mm-hmm. that there was this plucky Norwegian girl who went on this ship with her Easter bonnet 
all excited to go and dance with with the young boys from from Western Electric, and and go to to uh, Washington Park and Michigan City and go to the amusement park. And she gets on board this boat, and her mother says, "I don't like the feel of this ship." And this young girl is like, "Why did she? Why would she say that? My mom, my mama knows ships." And finally, the thing goes over and this poor girl is trapped in an air pocket and she has two choices one she can just succumb to the terror or two she can be the courageous strong one and help her mother and her sister and her uncle and help them survive and that's what she did and 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 the 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 woman survived, Borgild survived, and went on to live a long, productive life. Was never, after this disaster, she was never afraid of the water. She swam. I have seen whole movies of her, Super 8 films of her swimming. Mm-hmm. And I got tears in my eyes when I saw that because the woman is just, she's, you know, spiritually, she is a superior being to myself. She I mar- would have crumbled. She married, <laughs> you know? married and had a family. Married and had a family. How many kids did she had two have? families. You know, yeah. um, her her first husband. She had a family. You know, had a had a son with her first husband, mm-hmm. and and her first husband unfortunately passed away. And then late in her life, she married again. And I I won't tell you the great and sweet and wonderful ending to this this book, but I will say that her second marriage and what happened to her in the last decade of her life provides the perfect. Mm-hmm. Frosting to this this book to it me. It does indeed. I can testify. Okay, that. thanks. But we won't, we won't give it away. I don't want to give it away. We won't give it away. <laughs> what we will do, as a matter of fact, is once again repeat the title of the book, which is The Sinking of the Eastland America's Forgotten Tragedy by J. Bonansinga. If the name confuses you, it's spelled B O N A N S I N G A. I asked you before we were saying it beautifully. Well, I asked you before we went on the air, what kind of name is that? And uh, I never would have guessed that it was a Sicilian name. But... <laughs> yeah. Well, it really probably should be Bonasigna. Yeah, which sounds more likely. But I, I believe somewhere... I think uh, you got the Ellis Island treatment. Either in Ellis Island or in New Orleans or somewhere, uh-huh. they said, nah, you need an extra letter in there. Now, we're going to pause for a quick round of messages and then right on to the phones. The number is 591-7200. 591-7200. If you want to reach us, Move quickly. I see one line available at the moment. If you hit the busy signal, then, of course, the proper strategy is to keep trying, especially when we finish with some other caller. And we'll be directly on to your calls after this. And we return directly to Jay Bonansinga, drawing from his very significant new book, The Sinking of the Eastland. On to the phones in an instant. You're doing a book signing in a few days, are you? Yes. Uh, I'm going to be at Borders Books, 830 North Michigan Avenue, on Saturday, October 2nd at 2 p.m. I'm going to be doing a uh, lecture and reading, and we're going to have a lot of amazing photos there blown up so people can – it's mm-hmm. almost like a little mini exhibit. The Borders right here on Michigan Avenue? Yes. Yeah. This Saturday, 2.30. Right, and if you miss that, there's other signings. There's one at Books a Million on the 8th of October. There's one at Centuries and Sleuths in Forest Park on October 10th and Sunday. And there's others beyond that. Mm-hmm. But um, And there are loads of people who want to talk to the author at this instant. So we go to the first. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, good evening. Yes, ma'am. I actually wanted to share a story. My great-grandfather was on the Eastland, and so thank you, Jay, for writing this book. And My pleasure. And highlighting this. This says a lot to his memory. And I wanted to also validate a few of the points that you've been raising. Um, you made the mm-hmm. comment about why you were thinking not that many people knew about the Eastland. 
And I know from my history, not much was ever passed down. We were told that our great-grandfather was on the boat. We were told that um, he saved a couple of people. He actually was a survivor, but there wasn't a lot of talk about it. I think it was just such a depressing time that they didn't want to talk about it too much. Uh, An interesting side note on it, you had mentioned that this was a party that people would go to every year, and it was a huge event. And thank goodness my great-grandmother knew that very, very well because my great-grandfather wanted to take my grandfather, who was three at the time, and she discouraged that very vehemently because she had said, you're not taking him because I know all you're going to do is drink and you won't watch him. Well, Mm. thank goodness she didn't take him because he probably would not have survived and I wouldn't have been here. So that was actually a good thing. And he listened to her from then on. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Did you you know that great-grandfather? No, I did not. He passed on before Mm -hmm. I ever was alive, so I never heard any of the stories from him, but I heard it more from um, my grandfather and and his siblings. I was just telling Milt during the break that I have already received so many near-miss stories, you know, from people who, uh, relatives of theirs, were supposed to be on that ship. Yes, and he was on it. He was actually on it, and then... um, but we did hear the stories, which you said about Black Wednesday and Cicero and Lyons and Berwyn, all the black, um, because that's when funerals, obviously, and wakes took place in the home, mm-hmm. I meant to say. So you would see this up and down the street. And most of that side of the family is all interned or buried at the National Bohemian Cemetery. And when you go there, you can see so many gravestones or so many crematorium, uh, in the crematorium, the urns, they're all the same date, the same July date. And that's very... Mm-hmm. And, and touching. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, that's very true. Ma'am, thank you for the call. Thank you. Thank and you. We'll go quickly to another 5917200. Good evening. You're on the air. Hi, Mel. Yes, sir. Yes, I, I heard that the author had talked about um, the reason the boat sank. Mm-hmm. And I was under the impression that the boat sank because someone forgot to fill the ballast. And I was wondering why the author was was so quick to blame the captain of the ship. No, I don't think you have uh, rushed to blame the captain. You did mention the ballast problem as well, didn't you? Yeah. Um, Is there someone who who's had the responsibility to fill the ballast and forgot to do that? Yeah, that, that that's you're bringing up a really interesting point, and and um, I don't even want to. I I should probably clarify that um, I don't think we'll ever know for sure. The, the 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 real you know indisputable incontrovertible reason why it happened but um but you're you're absolutely right too the caller is absolutely right that uh, ultimately the courts decided that the uh, person who was in charge of filling the ballast was guilty but what I, what I was saying and the reason that I mentioned that uh, Harry Peterson had become a villain in my mind mm-hmm. was not necessarily how he behaved you know before the disaster happened and the you know his 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 ability as a captain but mostly because of how he behaved after it happened i don't know if you've heard our stories of this but um people were trapped when this boat went over mm-hmm. and uh welders who were in the area rushed to the scene and they said look we can help you cut these people out they're dying they're pounding on the hull we got to get these people out and many of the firemen said get to work go ahead at that point the captain, Harry Peterson, rushed out and started dragging them away from his ship, saying, don't you dare cut holes in my boat. 
Oh, I didn't. I didn't realize that he did that. Yeah, and 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 all these kind of and and quite mm. frankly, he had to be taken into custody to protect mm. his life. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating. I mean, but you know, you're not wrong about the ballast situation. You're, you're right. We thank the caller, and we'll go directly to another five nine one seven two double zero. Good evening. Hi, this is uh, Jason, and um, I will have to say I'm one of the ignorant Chicagoans on this show. <laughs> and um, honestly, this this is an interesting thing that I just caught on the radio. Uh, it, it last week I was um, one of the answer finders for uh, a scavenger hunt around the city. Um, when one of the questions was one of the most fatal, what was one of the most fatal um, disasters in Chicago history? Would this qualify as that? This is the deadliest disaster in Chicago history. And yeah. it's interesting because even with Google at my hand, <laughs> I, it was just nowhere to be found. No kidding. Nowhere to I mean, I typed in keywords like, you know, deadliest event in Chicago, um, you know, pulled up, pulled up the heat wave of 95, wow. you know, doubling that of the Chicago fire. Um, you know, we knew of the boat, but um, couldn't find it. And it's, it's just perfect this, timing. I've been glued to the radio. It's so you funny. About yeah, this. I mean, that, that again, that's why I wrote the book. It, it's driven me crazy over these years because it just has not gotten the import, you know, that it deserves. And, and I was telling Milt, I mean, I took it almost as a mission. I had to write a book about this, but not just any book. I had to write... Uh, as popular a book as I could. That's why I sort of approached it as a sort of a nonfiction novel and tried to make it more of a page turner so I could get the maximum readership because I just thought, this is how we're going to get this thing back into the, the zeitgeist, you know. Well, that's, and that's great. You know what? I literally, I'm going to thank you for the call because I'm going to do something about this because actually Google, you can do something about. <laughs> I can actually make sure it is on Google. So. Well, that's great. And also, I, I'm actually on the website right now, and um, did just wanted to ask: Is there are there going to be any exhibits, or are there any exhibits more on the Eastland disaster? Yeah, I'll just say real quickly that uh, the most amazing um, electronic exhibit is open 24 hours a day and available to everyone in the world, and it's at www.eastlanddisaster. One word. Dot org. That's where I am right now. It's really great. Yeah, and you can go on a tour of the ship. You can see the passenger list. You can, you know. Now who put well, that one together? Well, my, my friends and benefactors and angels, the Wachholzes, mm -hmm. um, do uh, maintain this, and have, have uh, they really? Are, I, I think are responsible for bringing this memory back before I even got involved Just in this. Just Eastland Disaster Dodge. Yes. Come. Eastland Disaster. So there's two D's in the middle. It's just no. all one, one word, word, no spaces. Sure. Dot org. Dot well, org. Google yeah. does pull up the Eastland. It just doesn't pull up the deadliest event. Sir, we thank you for the call. Thank, thank you. you. And let's rush on and take a number of others. Everyone is clamoring to get in on this one. So here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good evening, Milt. Yes, sir. In academic terms, I want to tell you that uh, this is a subject that's the bomb. And I'm just curious about the fact that I'm a uh, kayaker with uh, Rehab Institute of Chicago. And we pass a portion going from Lakeshore Drive going towards Dearborn. And there's what I would describe as a fire hydrant that sprays water across the river, and it's intermediate. And someone told me it was in honor of a disaster on the river at one time. Is this uh, something that has to do with the Eastlander? Well, 
Perhaps, because I can say that... Um, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I oh, actually I do know who you're talking uh-huh. about, believe it or not. Uh-huh. Um, just, again, very briefly, I won't go on and on about it, but um, every year now, thanks to the Wacholtzes and people like them, thanks to the, um, um, the Coast Guard, um, the firehouse unit that is still there, that was there in 1915, um, these, these kind of organizations and agencies and people, they, they um, every July 24th, they go down to the site on the river between LaSalle and Clark Street, and they do this amazing ceremony. And I've seen it twice. I've seen it two years in a row, and it's worth seeing. They throw a wreath on the river right at the site that the ship went down, and then the Coast Guard comes and gives a water cannon salute. To, to the ship and you know I don't know if, I'm not sure that's what you're talking about but I've, yeah, I've seen it, that it, it is and and um, I the ongoing spray that goes across the river is supposed to be in in honor of that this is what I've heard it's like a for uh, it's like uh, the um, um, eternal but flame yeah but there's like, nothing well, labeled that signifies uh, that it was for that and I was interested huh. in finding out if uh, Maybe there was something we could do or contact someone to say, hey, um, it's there. We see it when we kayak there. Can you tell us what it's about so that uh, it can be more um, I'd say the first thing you do is go to the information specialist in the mayor's office or in the cultural affairs office and uh, ask the question. That's a good idea. I want to read you an interesting email that has come in. The Eastland disaster was never forgotten in my family. My grandmother and grandfather were German immigrants who ran a saloon and boarding house in the area of 22nd and Wentworth, Mm. which, as you know, is now Chinatown. Back then, it was populated by new immigrants of all nationalities, Bohemian, Croatian, Italian, German, and more. The saloon was the kind where the purchase of a beer came with a full hot lunch or dinner, (laughs) which Grandma cooked daily. One of the customers worked for Western Electric and promised to take my mother, who was then six years old, and her four sisters to the picnic. He never showed up, having gotten drunk the night before and oversleeping, leaving five very disappointed little girls waiting for an excursion that never happened. Because they didn't go and didn't drown, over 40 people were born who never would have been here otherwise, one of whom, of course, is me. The story of the near miss was told over and over at family gatherings when I was young. This is from a, uh, a woman who apparently is a nurse. Maybe That's not, terrific. Says RN. After and and I, I won our gentleman's bet just then because I yeah. told you there'd be at least one near miss story. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And back to the phones, 591-7200. Good evening. Hi, how you doing? Yes, sir. Um, I remember hearing about this because I spent my teenage years growing up in Berwyn. So being right mm-hmm. next to Cicero, we did hear about this uh, right. once in a while. Um one of the things I had heard, though, is that because of the weight of all the people on the ship and the fact that um, I guess the river bottom is very soft there, it had pushed down far enough so that it actually started to pivot on the top of the subway, and that helped it uh, flip over. Did you hear anything about That's that? That's really interesting. I, 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 um, I read it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, was the subway there by 1915? I well, believe so, because that tunnel system is still yeah, there, which is from the late mm-hmm. um, 1900, uh, late right. 1800s. Yeah, very good. You're, 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 uh, you have uh, a lot of knowledge there. I think that the, the fact, well, let me put it this way. Um, one of the great sources that I uncovered was um, what came to be known as the coroner's inquest. Mm-hmm. 
And um, at the time, Cook County Coroner Peter Hoffman was the name of the gentleman who is he's sort of a major figure in this book. He, he actually went on to become very famous. He became the Cook County Sheriff. He, he, was, uh, he, he was a curmudgeon. And uh, he was actually lampooned in the front page. Ben Hecht actually lampooned this guy. But at the time of the Eastland, I believe he acted heroically. And he, in his inquest, had it allowed to continue, you know, sort of to its fruition, I think he would have gotten to the bottom of why it happened. And during, in his inquest, the captain maintained, and uh, many of the higher-ranking, uh, you know, uh, crew people on the Eastland maintained that there was a spile that it got caught on. Now, I don't know, you might be referring, this This might be sort of a version of the story you're talking about, um, but I, oddly enough, it, it, the, the fact that all the people moved over to one side of the boat almost became folklore. It became sort of the urban folktale uh, as to the reason why the boat tipped over. Right. And uh, after researching the thing, I came to the conclusion that wasn't really the main cause. Right. Um, because, you know, it was free-floating according to many witnesses, right up to the moment it, you know, tipped over. Right. And uh, it tipped over to the opposite side that most of the people were crowding because of the, you know, the dock. It, it, it tipped over to the river side. Um, so, you know, um, what you're saying is actually there, there, there is uh, text and sources that back up what you're saying, but I, I guess, you know, just everybody has their own perspective on it. And mine is that I don't believe that was the principal cause. Well, can I ask you, um, uh, I, sure. I, I saw a, uh, a special recently on Channel 11, and they referred to the fact that the ship was then, after it was cut open to try and get the people out, it was eventually repaired and put back in service on the Great Lakes, where I believe it sunk again. Well, I, 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 I'm not aware of it sinking again, but that, you're right, that's a fascinating story. Um, it was refitted, I mean, it, it it's all part of, in my opinion, the the just the uh, horrible, dark, ironic, you know, tributary to this story is that, you know, the boat was just auctioned off uh, and uh, repainted and refitted and turned into a naval training vessel and renamed. And um, it was part of the uh, sort of uh, conspiracy to forget this thing. And nobody um, even uh, referred to the disaster or the fact that it was once called the Eastland. Years later, the boat was decommissioned and, and made part of a, a museum exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry, and there was no mention of the Eastland. And people boarded this ship, the Wilmette. It was named the Wilmette. And they toured it, and they went through it, and no mention of the Eastland. And it was the same craft. That is bizarre. Isn't that bizarre? FDR wrote on it. F. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his Secretary of Defense huh. uh, went on a on a on a trip up to the UP on the Eastland and and uh, stayed you know uh, overnight on the boat and had uh, beautiful uh, dinners on it. Uh, no mention of the disaster. No mention. I mean, I I, met, I say in the book, you know, did he have nightmares when he was sleeping on that ship? I mean, it it was literally painted over. Wow. Sir, we must run quickly. Thank you for the call, and I want to work in one more caller, and here is that caller. Good evening. Hi. Um, my grandfather was the controller for the Western Electric, Bill Schroll. Wow. And um, he didn't make the ship. He was late, but his brother and sister were on the ship, and, of course, they perished. So it's always been, oh, like, in my family. Yeah. You know, and, you know, certainly my dad 
my dad was very young, and so, you know, it's kind of lost a little bit through the translation, but it's something we've always known about. We have um, my grandfather's tickets, you know, wow. the admission tickets. Mm-hmm. And it is, it really was not very uh, much talked about, although he did come to our schools um, when we were kids, and he would talk about it. But, it, it, oh. you know, it just, it it was big for them, but it just didn't apparently seem to be big for a whole lot of other people. But it was, it was big in our family. Did he go on working for the company? For oh, yeah. Yeah, he retired. Uh-huh. And wow. it was, a, he, you know, in our family, it was a wonderful company. You know, it, it fed everybody through the Depression. And Well, when, I, 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 you know, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I should say, and I'm not just saying this because you're on and you seem like a nice person. I'm trying to, you know, ameliorate you, but Western Electric came out looking really good, in my opinion. Of this, they really took care of the people. I believe, from what I've found in the research and what people have told me, and and the, the company is now called Lucent, and um, Lucent employs a historian. His name, gentleman's name is Ed Eckert, and he's an incredible guy, and he opened up their files to me. Ma'am, uh, we've run out of time. Thank you very much for the well, call. Thank you for the show. It's very interesting. My pleasure. Glad to have heard from thank you. Thank you. And we have only about a minute left. Uh, time to make very clear that the book that we've been drawing from, and there's, it's wonderfully written, and there's a vast amount of further detail in the book, is titled The Sinking of the Eastland America's Forgotten Tragedy by J. Bonansiga. And again, you said the publisher is... Citadel Press. Citadel Press. Yes, twenty one ninety five, which is actually a really good price for a hardcover book, if I may say. Undoubtedly. It may be so gauche, just to say. Though people can <laughs> buy it for a little bit less by buying it off our website. If you go to wgradio.com and go to click on my name and go to our program site and then go to our program guide and scroll down to the night of September 28th, You'll see a picture of the cover of the book. Click on that, and you're in the hands of Barnes & Noble, who will sell you the book at some usual, usual discount. 